There's always something new at buytrumpstuff.today. That's buytrumpstuff.today. Check out the new Shark Tail Hitch and Shark Pole Flagpole. Just one of the new sections you can find on the website. There's apparel, novelty, drinkware, travel gear, you name it, you'll find it right here. Show our president you support him this year and forever with buytrumpstuff.today. Never miss a thing. Come to lastscoutradio.com. It's the bunker for all things Last Scout Radio. Find out what's hot. Find out what's on Twitter, YouTube, DLive, BitChute, wherever Last Scout Radio Network is broadcasting. Also find out how to contribute using PayPal and Patreon. We'll see you over at LastScoutRadio.com. You're watching Atomic Biscuits. I'm your host, Bakfa. Our world is full of repeating stories. Just look around. The sun rises and then it sets. In between those times, you can hear the repeating cycles of life. The laughter of children at play. The chitter of squirrels as they forage and call to each other. Flocks of geese pointed to the destination overhead. The cycles of mankind aren't so dissimilar. Children are born. They learn to crawl and walk and run and work and age into bringing more children into the world and then they grow weaker in the body eventually to slip back into the immortal world and into time's book in the book of our life do we allow god to write chapters provide direction edit what can we not allow the opposition to set the tone the stage, set the characterization of who we are. Those who stand against God, those who stand against America, those that stand against freedom, I don't care what they call themselves. Leftists equals socialists equals Democrats equals neocons equals globalists equals warmongers equals Marxists equals communists because I know that God wins. And while those that helm media write glowing stories about what is evil and sully anything of good report, we must realize this is all foretold and reject it. We must be the anchor to reality, to hope, to peace, to prosperity. We will need to faithfully pursue our duty to teach and exemplify the correct way to be, to think, to live. We must author our own account and share it. Otherwise, we are left with the fables and fictions and sleight of hand from our enemies, both foreign and domestic, the narrative makers infecting the wires, the compromising bureaucrats who violate their oath, and became part of the bread and circuses for America. Atomic batteries to power. Turbines to speed. Roger, ready to move out.
Before we get started, I wanted to make sure that I wish all of you a Merry Christmas. I hope you had a good holiday. Uh, we absolutely have to make time to say Merry Christmas because something that wasn't so popular during the Obama administration was to express our Christian faith and our Christian religion. And President Trump has made that possible once again. So let's not forget to uh, thank him and thank God for our ability to express ourselves freely. Our first article comes from The Last Refuge. After promises from House and Senate, President Trump signs COVID-19 relief and omnibus spending bill dated December 27th by Sundance. Sunday night, President Trump signs H.R. 133, the $900 billion COVID-19 relief bill and omnibus spending bill to fund government through September 2021. According to press, released press reports, President Trump is signing the bill with rescission requests demanding that portions of the bill be struck from final implementation by the Senate. The president is redlining the bill and providing line-by-line -line instructions to Congress on the provisions within the bill that need to be modified and removed. The signing of this bill carries a statement from President Trump. As president, I have told Congress that I want far less wasteful spending and more money going to the American people in the form of $2,000 checks per adult and $600 per child. The statement continues, the Senate will start the process for a vote that will increase checks to $2,000, repeals Section 230, and starts an investigation into voter fraud. It's an image here of that part. Uh, the question is, uh, will it happen, right? The bill containing all the pork already carried a large veto-proof majority by those in the House and Senate who loaded it up with their special interest spending. I doubt a veto-proof bill will be modified by Congress. However, that veto-proof majority also made any veto effort by President Trump moot. So considering the structure, the best he could do would be to take the rescission route and make the request. So I, I agree with the author here. This might have been the only move to make, except he could have pocketed it and forced them to come back to the table. Uh, this rescission business it looks like a maneuver, but if possession is nine-tenths of the law, once the checks are written, once the, once the bill is signed, I think you kind of lose control of making any demands on it. So this is um, this is in motion and we'll just have to see how that works out. The next story comes to us from the Gateway Pundit, Rudy Giuliani, starting after Christmas, this is really going to blow up. Um, this was part of his podcast or his, his uh, yeah, I suppose you call it a podcast if it's video still vlog <laughs> called Common Sense. There's a link here uh, to this. I highly encourage you to go have a look at it. it. Says Christmas is not canceled. We all know President Trump won the 2020 election. Rudy Giuliani offers his thoughts to date. Rudy Giuliani, in his most recent Common Sense, is the name of the podcast discussion shared with the following. You're going to find out all at once. It's going to be very shocking to the country. Uh, embedded here, again, is a link to the specifics. 
The people at WeLoveTrump.com shared this about the current state of the 2020 presidential race. We've been telling you for weeks, let's put two plus two together. The White House has instructed Trump staff to stop packing. The Pentagon has stopped giving Joe Biden intelligence briefings. More Republican representatives are on the record claiming they will contest the electoral votes. Dan Scavino has been posting increasingly cryptic messages on Twitter, and Kamala Harris still hasn't left her Senate seat. Now, Rudy Giuliani has given an explanation on the voter fraud. You're going to find out all at once. It's going to be very shocking to the country. There is hope. We must continue to fight and pray for Trump and our country. President Trump crushed Joe Biden in the 2020 election. That's by uh, Joe Hoft over at the Gateway Pundit. No review of this week would be complete without discussion of the timeline of the explosion Christmas Day in downtown Nashville. This article by Natalie Nasa Alund over at the Nashville Tennessean gives a breakdown and a blow-by-blow of uh, what occurred when that explosion happened. I'll leave the link to this and all the articles covered near this video. Authorities are investigating after an explosion in downtown Nashville early Christmas morning. Metro Nashville police say the explosion was an intentional act and sparked by a vehicle blast. Here's the timeline of the incident. December 25th, 1.22 a.m., the RV uh, Metro police say is involved in the explosion was spotted in the area. 4.30 a.m., 2nd Avenue building owner and resident Betsy Williams said she woke up after hearing the sound of several bursts of rapid gunfire. After another round of gunshots uh, at 5.30 a.m., Williams says she called 911. Police responded to reports of shots fired near 2nd Avenue and Commerce Street when they saw a suspicious RV outside a nearby AT&T building. A recording seemed to be playing from the RV announcing that it would explode. Officers began evacuating residents in the area. 6.30 a.m. an explosion occurred along 2nd Avenue North. Metro Police said it was linked to the RV and appeared to be an intentional act. 6.45 a.m. emergency crews shut down streets and federal agents were called in. Three people were hospitalized for unspecified injuries. Nashville Fire Department reported. At 10.40 a.m., police went door-to-door with dogs in the downtown area to search nearby buildings, though they said there was no indication of any additional devices. 10.45 a.m., the White House released a statement about the explosion. Quote, President Trump has been briefed on the explosion and will continue to receive regular updates. The president is grateful for those in, for the incredible first responders and praying for those who were injured, end quote. 11 a.m., several people were taken to the police department's central precinct for questioning, but authorities declined to give more details Friday. At noon, AT&T internet and phone service was disrupted in the Nashville area, and AT&T spokesman confirmed the outage was linked to the explosion. The outage led to widespread 911 issues in the Nashville area and telecommunications issues at Nashville International Airport halting outbound flights. 
2.20 p.m., MNPD released a surveillance photo of the RV Friday afternoon and asked for the public's help. Police said the RV in question was spotted in the area of 2nd Avenue North and Commerce Street after 1 a.m. Friday. 4.16 p.m., Nashville Mayor John Cooper announced he had issued a state of civil emergency at the explosion site and the surrounding area that will put in place a curfew starting 4.30 p.m. Friday until 4.30 p.m. Sunday. The areas affected are bounded by James Robertson Parkway, 4th Avenue North, Broadway, and the Cumberland River. p.m. during a news conference, Metro Police Chief John Drake said a motive in the explosion was not known. He also said it was unclear if anyone was inside the RV when it exploded. Drake said police found tissue at the scene that could be human remains. Authorities will examine it to determine what it is. Cooper said he has asked Governor Bill Lee to declare a state of civil emergency given the widespread damage. The blast sent three people to the hospital and all three individuals were in stable condition, he said. Fire Chief William Swan said one building collapsed and others sustained major damage in the area around where the blast went off. The homes of several downtown residents were destroyed, Swan said, and the American Red Cross opened a shelter for those who were displaced. December 26th, 7 a.m. Dozens of streets remain locked down downtown as local, state, and federal officials continue to investigate the explosion. After working around the clock overnight, police could be seen guarding a perimeter of the area where detectives along with agents from the FBI and the uh, ATF were working to determine what caused the blast. No motive was known in the explosion that left hundreds of residents homeless on the cold Nashville Christmas night when temperatures dipped to the teens. The American Red Cross was working with those people. 9.25 a.m. AT&T said the company was in contact with law enforcement and working as quickly as possible to restore service for some customers in Nashville and surrounding areas. Quote, this is due to damage to our facilities from the explosion, AT&T tweeted. 1 p.m., the FBI leading the case said more than 500 tips have been reported in the past 24 hours. The investigation continues, including working with its behavioral analysis unit in Quantico. Quote, let me reiterate that Nashville is safe. We feel and know that we have no known threats at this time, end quote. Metro Police Chief John Drake said Saturday. Nashville Fire Department Chief William Swan said restoring services could take days to complete. He was hopeful the repairs could be made within the next two days and said work is ongoing around the clock. 2.30 p.m. local and federal agents have been in and out of a duplex in Antioch for court-authorized activity following information from the investigation, according to Daryl DeBusk, an FBI public affairs officer. DeBusk said no arrest has been made. A team wearing tactical gear marked with both ATF and FBI insignias entered the residence and cleared the home around 2.30 p.m. The bomb squad confirmed no one was inside, according to FBI personnel at the scene. An evidence team entered the residence around that time to conduct a search. December 27th, 4 p.m., U.S. Attorney Don Cochran confirms Anthony Q. Warner, 63, has been identified as the bomber and is believed to have died in the explosion. 
DNA found at the scene was matched to samples taken at another location searched by investigators. TBI Director David Roche said Sunday. The TBI was involved in testing the evidence. At this time, officials said there is no indication that anyone outside of Warner was involved in the explosion. Authorities reviewed hours of surveillance footage, and they say they only saw Warner. A motive in the bombing has not been released and is still under investigation, according to FBI Special Agent for Public Affairs Doug Korneski. The types of explosives used in the bombing were still under investigation, authorities said. The FBI and Warner wasn't on the radar of authorities before Friday's explosion and declined to deem the explosion an act of terrorism. We just stop right there. Uh, we later find out that the FBI has indeed had two reports in advance, according to other reports, uh, that Warner was some sort of risk. Now, what was he doing that would have gotten someone to call in the first place? Or were they just trying to point the nose of the FBI in this direction while the, um, the whole setup was occurring? Nashville Police Chief John Drake reiterated that investigators have found no additional threats against the city. 4.30 p.m., Mayor John Cooper extends a curfew originally set to expire at 4.30 p.m. Sunday until noon Monday. The curfew zone is bounded by James Robertson Parkway, 4th Avenue North Broadway, and the Cumberland River. Now, reports also that the mayor, John Cooper, laughed when he heard about the damage and the devastation. Um, he He's a Democrat and had said, oh, you know, the, the buildings were were uh, blackened and the few leaves were knocked off trees that's clearly not the extent of the damage it's much more extensive than that it's very extensive and maybe he was just trying to minimize it or maybe he was uninformed but time will tell also over at the tennessean before we get too far from this story is this additional article, Anthony Quinn Warner, self-employed computer guru, ID'd as lone Nashville bomber killed in blast. This is by Natalie Allison and published on December 27th. Federal authorities say a 63-year-old Antioch man was responsible for Christmas morning's bombing that left the suspect dead and captured the nation's attention over the holiday as officials work to determine who parked an RV downtown to detonate. What motivated him is still unknown. Hundreds of federal, state, local law enforcement officers worked to solve the case in just 60 hours after the explosion. Agents Sunday evening named Anthony Quinn Warner as the bomber. He died in the blast. He was present when the bomb went off and he perished in the bombing, said Don Cochran, U.S. Attorney for Middle District of Tennessee. Through DNA evidence, authorities confirmed Warner's remains were found at the scene, Cochran said. I cannot truly describe all the hard work that has gone into this investigation since Friday's explosion, Metro Nashville Police Chief John Drake said during Sunday's announcement, Nashville is considered safe. Police earlier in the day released chilling details about the moments before the bomb detonated on 2nd Avenue about 6.30 a.m. on Friday, adding to an eerie portrait of a man in an RV who blared evacuation warnings before the explosion demolished a city block. While acquaintances on Sunday described Tony Warner as a self-employed computer guru and a homebody who tended to his pets and kept to himself, Police officers on the scene before the bomb exploded recalled a strange recording emanating from the RV. In between a digital 
the digitized female voice giving warnings to evacuate the area. There was music, the officers said. Downtown, a wistful 1964 song by Petula Clark echoed down 2nd Avenue just before the blast. When you're alone and life's making you lonely, you can always go downtown, blared Clark's voice through the speakers. When you've got worries, all the noise in the hurry seems to help, I know. Despite massive destruction to 41 buildings, no one else was killed in the explosion. Officers helped evacuate nearby residents from several apartments. The RV was parked outside an AT&T facility, though authorities have not said whether they believe the telecommunications company may have been a target. The blast, the blast caused extensive damage to phone and internet coverage throughout the region, causing communication blackouts for 911 centers in surrounding counties, leaving customers throughout the state without service and exposing vulnerabilities in the infrastructure. Governor Bill Lee on Saturday requested federal aid in, helping, uh, in an effort to help businesses affected by the explosion. An evening curfew remained in place until Sunday, though access into downtown is still restricted. Authorities are expected to continue their investigation downtown in the coming days. The types of explosives used in the blast remain unknown. Warner wasn't on the radar of local law enforcement. Before Friday's explosion, they said, and officials have declined to deem the bombing an act of terrorism. Doug Korneski, an FBI special agent in charge, said Sunday investigators had reviewed hours of security video surrounding the recreational vehicle and determined no other suspects were involved in the bombing. Tips from the public helped authorities identify, initially, Warner as a suspect. Uh, tips from the public helped identify Warner as the suspect. The Tennessee Highway Patrol discovered a vehicle parked from the RV with a vehicle identification number linking it to Warner. So in the pile of rubble, they found the VIN number on some part, and that's how they tracked it back. And of course, then we saw all kinds of people using Google Earth images trying to match the vehicles. Um, let me just say, soup to nuts, solving this in two or three days seems a bit pat. Korneski requested people who knew Warner to contact police and share information while authorities investigate any and all motives. None of those answers will ever be enough for those who've been affected by this event, Korneski said. Who was Tony Warner? Warner grew up in Antioch and attended Antioch High School, graduating in the mid-70s before settling down in the same community and working various IT jobs. But in just the past month, Warner appeared to put his affairs in order. He transferred ownership of the home where he lives. He informed a regular business client he would no longer be working for them. And let me just stop right here. This property transfer to the woman in California is not the first time that that happened. His parents also had a piece of property on this in the same area, and it had also been pushed through her through a quitclaim deed of zero dollars through his brother and then through her and then to someone else. Uh, I find this very strange that homes transfer for zero dollars four times. If this is a an ordinary thing in Tennessee, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to find out a little bit more about how that works. 
property records show on the day before Thanksgiving, Warner transferred the title of his longtime Bakertown Road home to a Los Angeles woman. The transaction, a quick claim deed that did not require the woman's signature, was made for zero dollars. Steve Friedrich, who owns Friedrich and Clark Realty, said Warner was hired four or five years ago as a contractor to provide IT services for the business. Warner repaired the company's computers and set up machines for new employees. In December, he sent us an email saying he'd no longer be working for us, Friedrich said. Warner didn't give a reason. The company reached out to the FBI after learning through news coverage that Warner was a person of interest in the case. Agents visited the office Saturday evening, FBI spokesperson Jason Pack confirmed. Warner hadn't had a run-in with the authorities since 1978 when, as a young adult, he was charged with felony drug possession. He served two years of probation. Yearbooks from Antioch High School show Warner, a short teenager with glasses, played on the school's golf team. Charlie Bozeman, a longtime Metro High School coach, was in charge of Antioch's golf coach and golf team probably in 1974 when Warner played. What I can remember about him was essentially three things, quiet, polite, and I don't like to use the term, but quite frankly, nerdish, recalled Bozeman. He was a very reserved person. He wasn't outgoing around me. I never had any discipline problems with him whatsoever, but that whole group was all great kids. Today, Warner does not have a public presence on social media or other websites. Neighbors who have lived by Warner for decades say he rarely left home, instead spending much of his time working in his yard. He kept to himself, but would speak to his neighbors engaging in small talk before going on his way. Steve Schmolt and his wife have lived next door to Warner for 25 years. He described Warner as low-key and friendly, though some people would say he's a little odd. You never saw anyone come and go, Schmoltz said of Warner's home, never saw him go anywhere. As far as we knew, he was the kind of computer geek that worked at home. Warner had placed lights and security cameras outside his house. He would do a lot of work in his yard where a tall antenna is prominent on the side of the house, Schmoltz said. Warner built the fence around his yard himself. The neighbors never talked about politics or religion. Warner never gave any indication of any closely held ideology. But I can tell you as far as politics, he never had any yard signs or flags in his window or anything like that. If he did have any political beliefs, he kept that was something he kept to himself. Schmoltz said while the RV had been parked outside the home for years, a couple of weeks ago, Warner built a gate at the fence and drove the RV into the yard. Daniel Douglas, who lived across the street from Warner for 26 years, said Warner told him he moved the RV because people were trying to break into it. Hmm. Warner received packages frequently, his neighbor said, and in the past year installed a mailbox. Previously, Warner used a post office box to receive his mail, but then began receiving packages at home, Douglas said. As news unfolded Friday morning, it wasn't immediately obvious that Warner and his RV were nowhere to be found. To be honest, we didn't really pay any attention. It was gone until the FBI and ATF show showed up, Schmoltz said. He and his wife watched the news Christmas morning as information began to unfold about the 2nd Avenue bombing. They saw the photos police released of the RV in question. 
That night, they noticed some cars driving up and down their street. Then on Saturday, they saw a large group of law enforcement outside Warner's home. Holy cow, there's a SWAT team out there, Schmoltz recalled his wife saying as she looked out the front door mid-morning. When Schmoltz learned that whoever was in the RV appeared to have tried to avoid casualties, his mind went to Warner's devotion to his animals for so many years. Warner had dogs over the years, first two small Shelties and then a larger dog he adopted, though the pets had since died. Schmoltz said Warner took really good care of his dogs, even building a wheelchair ramp for them when they got older so the animals didn't have to use the stairs to get inside the house. If it was him, he didn't want to hurt anybody, Schmoltz said, but if that's the case, what other message is there? If indeed it was him, I just, I don't know. They have to figure out some kind of motive. The reason I wanted to make sure that I got through this article with you is, is to sort of lay out the description, the story, the narrative. What we have here is someone who would be an easy template to write on if he was didn't have close family, neighbors didn't really know him very well, if someone was trying to collect him and use him and activate him and manipulate him or hold him hostage even for all we know he was unconscious in that truck when it exploded there 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 are a lot of things about this story that smell funky to me and i invite you to to dig in there's there's been much posted about how the location of the AT&T building and its impact and where the truck were that it doesn't line up like there's no crater where there should be a crater. Um, there's been much posted on how tips came in to link the VIN to the suspect and that the FBI had been called twice beforehand to report Warner. I, I mean, but after consuming all these different angles on this story, I still feel like that there, that this man, may be a patsy. As a loner, he makes a good candidate to be manipulated into place to achieve some larger nefarious purpose. So anyway, I've made my opinion known on Gab, so come and argue with me about it there. Over at ZeroHedge.com, we have this story. It's long past time for the CDC to clean up the COVID-19 death counts. It's posted by Tyler Durden on December 28th authored by Stacy Lennox via pjmedia.com. Some of us have been questioning the COVID-19 death counts reported by the CDC through the National Center for Health Statistics for some time. Of course, CNN and corporate media love the likely elevated counts to push their narrative. Lockdown Inc. loves them to justify their destruction of lives and livelihoods. A report from the Freedom Foundation, a Washington state think tank, explains why. The foundation's original analysis of deaths in the state found the number may have been inflated by as much as 13%. And set here reads, in May, a report released by the Freedom Foundation, an Olympia-based free market think tank revealed the DOH was attributing to COVID-19 every death in which the deceased previously tested positive for the virus. However, it's clear that catching the disease and dying of it are two very different matters. 
Washington's data was riddled with cases as much as 13% of the total in which the death certificate made no reference to COVID-19 as a cause of death. In several cases, even gunshot deaths were chalked up to the virus. While the Department of Health did remove 200 deaths from the count, the Freedom Foundation did another analysis combining data sources from the Department of Health for nearly 2,000 deaths as of early September. The new analysis found that 170 death certificates did not mention COVID-19. Another 171 deaths had no causal connection to the virus. According to the Post Millennial, the group estimates Washington's death counts could be inflated as much as 20%. New data from the CDC regarding the conditions contributing to deaths where COVID-19 is also involved clearly demonstrates deaths from the virus are overestimated nationwide. This is not surprising given the loose guidelines for attributing a death to COVID-19 and the financial incentives through public and private insurance to put COVID-19 on a patient's chart. First, as I've written several times, many COVID-19 positive people who were terminally ill died a few months before they otherwise would have. These pull-forward deaths often happened with influenza and pneumonia when a person is elderly or severely compromised. For example, the data shows 3,622 people over the age of 75 died of hypertensive renal disease with kidney failure. Kidney failure is a progressive and terminal condition even with kidney dialysis. An additional 939 in the same age group died with lung cancer as well as COVID-19. Second, the report demonstrates most younger patients were also suffering from a different severe illness if they died from COVID-19. On the same line for kidney failure, a total of 18 people under the age of 35 passed away with this condition and COVID-19. 10 people under the age of 35 died with acute lymphoblastic lymphoma in addition to the virus. The average five-year survival rate in this age group is between 68.1% and 85%, leaving the distinct possibility that these were the sickest all patients. These are just a few examples of terminal conditions that could have been examples of a pull-forward death since there is nothing in the NCHS guidance to require symptoms or evidence of active COVID-19. It is impossible to tell whether or not these were pull-forward deaths. As Washington demonstrates, some of this error will come from state-level practices. New York, for example, backdated 3,700 presumed COVID-19 deaths early in the pandemic. The above does not even include the broad class of ICD-9 codes referred to as intentional and unintentional injury, poisoning, and other other adverse effects. The report contains 9,343 deaths associated with everything from drug overdoses to traumatic accidents and suicide. These deaths alone equal 3% of the current number of total deaths. It's long past time for the CDC and NCHS to require some evidence of a severe illness from COVID-19 rather than simply a positive test. There are significant numbers of lab values and imaging changes that, taken together, can reasonably be assumed to paint a clinical course that includes active illness from COVID-19. The best test would be a viral culture. If the virus or viral debris in a patient's system cannot replicate in a culture, it can't be a cause of death. A positive PCR test within 28 days, 
current standard in Washington is also unacceptable, especially with the number of asymptomatic cases. A virus that never makes you sick or only makes you mildly ill will not kill you or likely contribute to your death. Rather, you are likely one of the 30 to 60 percent of people with reactive immunity from other coronavirus exposure. Likewise, if someone already suffers from a terminal illness, unless the end-stage events include symptoms of severe COVID-19, it should not be counted among the causes of death. A scroll through the spreadsheet and a bit of clinical knowledge supports the estimate of the Freedom Foundation as a minimum number. Americans deserve transparency and accuracy at this point. It's a dereliction of duty for the CDC and NCHS not to tailor their guidelines to the disease progression of a COVID-19 infection capable of contributing to a person's death. This story comes to us from Newsmax.com. Pope formally strips Vatican Secretariat of State of Assets. Pope Francis has formally stripped the Vatican Secretariat of State of its financial assets and real estate holdings following its bungled management of hundreds of millions of euros in donations and investments that are now subject of a corruption investigation. Francis signed a new law over the weekend ordering the Secretariat of State to complete the transfer of all its holdings for another, to another Vatican office by February 4th. The law also calls for all donations to the Pope, the Peter's Pence collections from the faithful as well as other donations that had been managed by the Secretariat of State to be held and managed by the Vatican's Treasury Office as separate funds that are accounted for in the Holy See's consolidated budget. The changes are a response to a spiraling Vatican criminal investigation into years-long allegations of management of donations and investments by the Vatican's Secretary of State, which has resulted in losses of tens of millions of euros at a time of financial crisis for the Holy See. Francis had already ordered the transfers in August and followed up in November by appointing a commission to put the changes into effect. The new law makes the changes permanent and sets a firm date for their execution. Francis said he was making the changes to improve the administration, control, and vigilance over the Holy See's assets and ensure a more transparent and efficient management. Francis moved against his own Secretariat of State amid an 18-month investigation by Vatican prosecutors in the office's 350 million euro investment into a luxury residential building in London's Chelsea neighborhood and other speculative funds. Prosecutors have accused several officials in the department of abusing their authority for the involvement in the deal, as well as several Italian middlemen of allegedly fleecing the Vatican of tens of millions of euros in fees. The scandal has exposed the incompetence of the Vatican's monsignors in managing money since they signed away voting shares in the deal and agreed to pay exorbitant fees to Italians who were known in business circles for their shady dealings. Francis's decision has been an embarrassing blow to the Secretariat of State's standing as the most powerful Holy See office, reducing it to essentially any other department that must propose a budget and have it approved and monitored by others. This paragraph here makes me wonder if this was simply paying off someone, uh, strong arming, uh, paying protection money. All of this starts to smell very familiar in Italian circles. 
The outcome is essentially what was sought years ago by Cardinal George Pell, France's first economy minister, minister, who clashed with the Secretary of State over his financial reforms and efforts to wrest control of the department's off-the-books funds. Pell had to abandon those reform efforts in 2017 to face trial for sexual abuse in his native Australia, but he was acquitted and recently told the Associated Press he felt vindicated that the wrongdoing he tried to uncover was being exposed. Hmm, maybe a whole new light for that situation. The Holy See is facing a major cash crunch as its main source of revenue Ticket sales from the Vatican Museums evaporated this year due to coronavirus closures. The Holy See last year narrowed its budget deficit from 75 million euros to 11 million euros. Um, hmm. I would watch all kind of money maneuvering going on right now. That's that. It looks like some interesting things are starting to happen in the world of finance. The next article I've pulled for you comes from bleepingcomputer.com. It's kind of an industry, sort of a popular science-y type thing for computer nerds. I wanted to read this to you. I know it's a, it's a maybe a little too nerdy, but uh, there's some familiar things in it that I think might be worth just exposing you to. GitHub-hosted malware calculates global strike payload from imager pick. Now, that's a lot of garbledy-goop. GitHub is a place where people post repositories of software code. So if, you, if you're going to collaboratively build a tool and you're going to have it open source, GitHub is a good place to put this because it allows people from all over the world to add and take and use and copy and snip. Okay. Uh, but malware shouldn't be there. No, no, we don't want malware over at GitHub. Cobalt Strike, and I think it explains this later in the article, is a type of penetration testing software to see how secure your system is. And Imager is a video, is a, sorry, an imaging hosting website. You probably, if you're looking for memes and stuff, you might've tripped across Imager from here or there. So with, with that, let's have a look at this article by Axe Sharma dated December 28th. A new strand of malware uses Word files with macros to download a PowerShell script from GitHub. PowerShell is what replaced the old command prompt. The PowerShell script further downloads a legitimate image file from image hosting service Imager to decode a Cobalt strike script on Windows systems. Okay, in short, what I'm saying, what, what's being said here is that the image itself is used as the key information to send the instructions into Cobalt script, uh, Cobalt strike. Multiple researchers have potentially linked this strain to Muddy Water Attack, a government-backed advanced persistent threat group first observed in 2017 while mainly targeting Middle Eastern entities, also known as Seedworm and Temp Zagros. This week, researcher ArcBird has shared details on a new macro-based malware that is evasive and spawns payload in multifaceted steps. The malware strand, which looks like muddy water, according to the research group, ships as an embedded macro within a legacy Microsoft Word file in the style of 
the APT group. In tests by Bleeping Computer, when the Word document is opened, it runs the embedded macro. The macro launches PowerShell and feeds it the location of a script hosted on GitHub. The single line PowerShell script has instructions to download a real image file from the hosting service imager. While this image itself may be benign, its pixel values are used by the PowerShell script in calculating the next stage payload. The technique of hiding code, secret data, or malicious payload within ordinary files such as images is known as steganography. Hmm, where have we heard about that before? Tool, tools like invoke PSI a PS image can make this possible by encoding a PowerShell script within the pixels of a PNG file and generating a one-line command to execute the payload. As observed by Bleeping Computer and shown below, the payload calculation algorithm runs a for-each loop to iterate over a set of pixel values within the PNG command uh, image and perform specific arithmetic operations to obtain functional ASCII commands. The decoded script obtained from the manipulated PNG's pixel values is a Cobalt Strike script. Cobalt Strike is a legitimate penetration testing toolkit that allows attackers to deploy beacons on compromised devices to remotely create shells, execute PowerShell scripts, perform privilege escalation, or spawn a new session to create a listener on the victim system. So let me just sum this up in layman's terms really quickly. So basically, you've got a Word document that's infected. And by using it, it launches something from the command line, which then goes and pulls this image file down, which has commands inside of it for another tool to use to launch a beacon to let the command and control structure know, hey, this unit is infected. Use me. So it's waiting for instructions, and that's that's how they get their their themselves wedged in. Anyway, this goes on and gets more detailed as it goes. I'll leave the link to this story for you if you're interested in digging into this. This is the sort of compromise that could be used on any kind of Windows-based system, including voting machines, to command and control things. So uh, there are a lot of these types of things out there and I encourage you to be um, vigilant. This story comes to us from i24news.tv. China, regulators order business overhaul for Jack Ma's ant group. This was posted December 28th. Beijing takes on Jack Ma's empire after China's wealthiest man lambasted its credit policies in major speech. Chinese regulators demanded a major business overhaul from Ant Group, a fintech affiliate of Alibaba Group, in a rare public rebuke on Sunday. Formerly known as Alipay, Ant Group is part of the financial empire built by Jack Ma, China's wealthiest businessman, as per Forbes, and initially handled its payments. However, in recent years, it largely diversified its services to also include consumer loans, insurance, and asset management, which, under the demands voiced by the Chinese authorities over the weekend, will have to be brought in line with the Chinese regulations. The regulators wanted the company to go back to its initial sphere, handling digital payments, and only stopped short of pulling the company apart, according to Bloomberg. 
with Ma's Alibaba giant coming under an anti-monopoly probe earlier this week. The Chinese authorities stopped Ant Group's initial public offering in November, an IPO that was projected to bring the company $37 billion and become the world's largest on record. According to a report by the Wall Street Journal, the decision to halt the IPO was made personally by China's President Xi Jinping, with Ma falling out of favor with China's top brass. Ahead of the IPO breakup, Ma came out with a speech lambasting China's collateral-oriented loan policies that were greatly favoring large businesses as opposed to small companies and private individuals, calling for a credit system driven by big data. As Ant Group vowed to implement the changes sought by the regulators, its big tech counterparts in the United States have also come under increased scrutiny, with Google and Facebook facing antitrust lawsuits as well. It's safe to assume that Jack Ma, like our Jack here and other tech lords, are probably a front for a, an op funded at the base by the government and the government wants to keep control of it and their their latitude is limited uh, by spreading into a multinational environment the individual countries have a hard time keeping the reins on i think there's a lot more to that story than meets the eye Let's look over here at this article from schneier.com and this um, author bruce schneier comes up in other avenues. I think it's useful to many of the players have blogs like this and it's helpful to know how they think and what they're up to and what they think is important. Uh, anyway, I've, fo I've followed this guy for a while because of his take on technology. It seems very practical and very down to earth. Uh, all but forgotten in this week of noise has been the Russia solar winds attack and that's the subject of this article, this blog post. Recent news articles have all been talking about the massive Russian cyber attack against the United States, but that's wrong on two accounts. It wasn't a cyber attack at international relations terms, it was espionage. And the victim wasn't just the U.S., it was the entire world. But it was massive and it is dangerous. Espionage is intentionally allowed in peacetime. The problem is that both espionage and cyber attacks require the same computer and network intrusions, and the difference is only a few keystrokes. And since this Russian operation isn't at all targeted, the entire world is at risk, and not just from Russia. Many countries carry out these sorts of operations, none more extensively than the United States. The solution is to prioritize security and defense over espionage and attack. Here's what we know. Orion is a network management product from a company named SolarWinds with over 300,000 customers worldwide. Sometime before March, hackers working for the Russian SVR, previously known as the KGB, hacked into SolarWinds and slipped a backdoor into an Orion software update. We don't know how, but last year the company's update server was protected by the password SolarWinds123, something that speaks to a lack of security culture. Users who downloaded and installed that corrupted update between March and June unwittingly gave SVR hackers access to their networks. 
This is called a supply chain attack because it targets a supplier and an organization rather than an organization itself and can affect all of a supplier's customers. It's an increasingly common way to attack networks. Other examples of this sort of attack include fake apps and the Google Play Store and hacked replacement screens from your smartphone for your smartphone. SolarWinds has removed its customer list from its website, but the Internet Archive saved it. All five branches of the U.S. military, the State Department, the White House, the NSA, 425 of the Fortune 500 companies, all five of the top five accounting firms, and hundreds of universities and colleges. In an SEC filing, SolarWinds said it believes fewer than 18,000 of those customers installed this malicious update, another way of saying that more than 17,000 did. That's a lot of vulnerable networks, and it's inconceivable that the SVR penetrated them all. Instead, it chose carefully from its cornucopia of targets. Microsoft's analysis identified 40 customers who were infiltrated using this vulnerability. The great majority of those were in the United States, but networks in Canada, Mexico, Belgium, Spain, the UK, Israel, and the UAE were also targeted. This list includes governments, government contractors, IT companies, think tanks, and NGOs, and it will certainly grow. Once inside a network, SVR hackers followed a standard playbook, established persistent access that will remain even if the initial vulnerability is fixed, move laterally around the network by compromising additional systems and accounts, and then exfiltrate data. Not being a SolarWinds customer is no guarantee of security. This SVR operation used other initial infection vectors and techniques as well. These are sophisticated and patient hackers, and we're only just learning some of the techniques involved here. Recovering from this attack isn't easy because any SVR hackers would establish persistent access. The only way to ensure that your network isn't compromised is to burn it to the ground and rebuild it, similar to reinstalling your computer's operating system to recover from a bad hack. This is how a lot of sysadmins are going to spend their Christmas holiday, and even then they can't be sure. There are many ways to establish persistent access that survive rebuilding individual computers and networks. We know, for example, of an NSA exploit that remains on a hard drive even after it has been reformatted. Code for that exploit was part of the equation group tools that the shadow brokers, again believed to be Russians, stole from the NSA and published in 2016. The SVR probably has the same kinds of tools. Even without that caveat, many network administrators won't go through the long, painful, and potentially expensive rebuilding process. They'll just hope for the best. It's hard to overstate how bad this is. We're still learning about U.S. government organizations breached, the State Department, the Treasury Department, Homeland Security, the Los Alamos, and Sandia National Laboratories where nuclear weapons were developed, the National Nuclear Security Administration, the National Institutes of Health, and many more. At this point, there's no indication that any classified networks were penetrated, although that could easily change. It could take years to learn which networks the SVR has penetrated and where it still has access. Much of that will probably be classified, which means that we, the public, will never know. Just as an aside here, if you were, if you were a globalist, wouldn't one of the best ways to get the United States to comply would be to basically take everything that makes them exceptional and secret and have an advantage and break it. 
And now that the Orion vulnerability is public, other governments and cyber criminals will use it to penetrate vulnerable networks. I can guarantee you that the NSA is using the SVR's hack to infiltrate other networks. Why would they not? Do any Russian organizations use Orion? Probably. While this is a security failure of enormous proportions, it is not, as Senator, Senator Richard Durbin said, virtually a declaration of war by Russia on the United States. While President-elect Biden said he will make a top this a top priority, it's unlikely he will do much to retaliate. I know that they've called it a Pearl Harbor event. But then again, much has been done in the name of Pearl Harbor type attacks, including 9-11, right? We got our security state because of the characterization of what happened on 9-11. So while I'm a big fan of retaliation, specific retaliation, quick retaliation, complete retaliation, not long drawn out wars, we have to be really careful that we have all the facts. The reason is that by international norms, Russia did nothing wrong. This is the normal state of affairs. Countries spy on each other all the time. There are no rules or even norms, and it's basically buyer beware. The U.S. regularly fails to retaliate against espionage operations, such as China's hack of the Office of Personnel Management and previous Russian hacks, because we do it too. Speaking of the OPM hack, and then Director of National Intelligence James Clapper said, you have to kind of salute the Chinese for what they did. If we had the opportunity to do that, I don't think we'd hesitate for a minute. Now, just for transparency, the author here is also a type of uh, White Tower, Central Planner sort. So just, just that characterization. It's hard to know sometimes where people's politics lie, but that has a lot to do with what they think is acceptable. We don't, and I'm sure NSA employees are grudgingly impressed with the SVR. The U.S. has by far the most extensive and aggressive intelligence operation in the world. The NSA's budget is the largest of any intelligence agency. It aggressively leverages the U.S.'s position controlling most of the internet backbone and most of the major internet companies. Edward Snowden disclosed many targets of its efforts around 2014, which then included 193 countries, the World Bank, the IMF, and the International Atomic Energy Agency. We are undoubtedly running an offensive operation on the scale of this SVR operation right now, and it'll probably never be made public. In 2016, President Obama boasted that we have more capacity than anybody both offensively and defensively. He may have been too optimistic about our defensive capability. The U.S. prioritizes and spends many times more on offense than on defensive cybersecurity. In recent years, the NSA has adopted a strategy of persistent engagement, sometimes called defending forward. The idea is that instead of waiting passively for the enemy to attack our networks and infrastructure, we go on the offensive and disrupt attacks before they get to us. This strategy was credited with foiling a plot by Russian Internet Research Agency to disrupt the 2018 elections. It's also basically the neocon strategy of war around the world, interventionalism, right? But if persistent engagement is so effective, how could it have missed this massive SVR operation? It seems that pretty much the entire U.S. government was unknowingly sending information back to Moscow. 
if we had been watching everything the Russians were doing, we would have seen some evidence of this. The Russians' success under the watchful eye of the NSA and U.S. Cyber Command shows that this is a failed approach. And how did U.S. defensive capability miss this? The only reason we know about this breach is because earlier this month, the security company FireEye discovered that it had been hacked. During its own audit of its own network, it uncovered the Orion vulnerability and alerted the U.S. government. Why don't organizations like the Departments of State, Treasury, and Homeland Security regularly conduct that level of audit on their own systems? The government's intrusion detection system, Einstein 3, failed here because it doesn't detect new sophisticated attacks, a deficiency pointed out in 2018, but never fixed. We shouldn't have relied on a private cybersecurity company to alert us of a major nation-state attack. And don't get me started on these guys. They're the ones who love uh, Hillary Clinton. If anything, the U.S.'s prioritization of, offense, of offense over defense makes us less safe. In the interests of surveillance, the NSA has pushed for an insecure cell phone encryption standard and a backdoor and random number generators important for, secret, uh, for secure encryption. The DOJ has never relented on its insistence that the world's popular encryption systems be made insecure through backdoors, another hot point where attack and defense are in conflict. In other words, we allow for insecure standards and systems because we can use them to spy on others. This is why things don't get fixed. That's why Blue Keep existed. We need to adopt a defense-dominant strategy. As computers and the internet become increasingly essential to society, cyber attacks are likely to be the precursor to actual war. We are simply too vulnerable when we prioritize offense, even if we have to give up the advantage of using those insecurities to spy on others. Our vulnerability is magnified as eavesdropping may bleed into a direct attack. The SVR's access allows them not only to eavesdrop, but also to modify data, degrade network performance, or erase entire networks. The first might be normal spying, but the second certainly could be considered an act of war. Russia is almost certainly laying the groundwork for future attack. And I think we could replace the word Russia with any foreign actor. It's just, the, just one bugaboo. This preparation would not be unprecedented. There's a lot of attack going on in the world. In 2010, the U.S. and Israel attacked the Iranian nuclear program. In 2012, Iran attacked the Saudi National Oil Company. North Korea attacked Sony in 2014. Russia attacked the Ukrainian power grid in 2015 and 2016. Russia is hacking the U.S. power grid, and the U.S. is hacking Russia's power grid, just in case the capability is needed someday. All of these attacks began as a spying operation. Security vulnerabilities have real-world consequences. We're not going to be able to secure our networks and systems in this no-rules, free-for-all, every-network-for-itself world. The U.S. needs to willingly give up its part, uh, give up give up part of its offensive 
advantage in cyberspace in exchange for a vastly more secure global cyberspace. We need to invest in securing the world's supply chains from this type of attack and to press for international norms and agreements prioritizing cybersecurity like the 2018 Paris call for trust and security in cyberspace or the Global Commission on the Stability of Cyberspace, hardening widely used software like Orion or the core internet protocols helps everyone. We need to dampen this offensive arms race rather than exacerbate it and work towards cyber peace. Otherwise, hypocritically criticizing the Russians for doing the same we do every day will help create the safer world in which we all want to live. And of course, this originally appeared in The Guardian. So this is... I think here's where we we really run off the rails. This idea that we need to create a you you know a utopian internet for the whole world where there is such a structure that everyone has to abide by the same rules sounds just like the same junk that doesn't work in politics in the real world. What we need is to secure ourselves inside the United States from attack from outside yes defense first and we need to be able to communicate within the united states with each other unimpeded yes but all of those connections to outside of our country need to be monitored and they need to be filtered the idea that we persist in allowing external actors outside the united states to come across cables and satellites to attack us is ridiculous we can pinch them off at the bridge Anyway, I wanted to share that with you because I thought it was important to see how some of the people who are making policy and some of the people who are making recommendations in the electronic universe are the ones who will decide how things happen in the real world because they're the ones developing those sorts of relationships and those their view of the world and what they think is ideal may not be what you and I would desire. The next story comes to us from the Dallas uh, from DallasNews.com, which is the Dallas Morning News website. China's takedown of Hong Kong is part of a strategy of world domination. After China violated an international treaty on Hong Kong, the world shouldn't trust it to honor any other treaty. By Claudia Rossett, dated December 27th. The year 2020 will be remembered as a time of major inflection points, including the coronavirus pandemic and the U.S. election. More obscure to most Americans, but a dire turn in the shaping of the 21st century is an event that took place in Hong Kong at 11 p.m. on June 30th, the eve of the 23rd anniversary of the handover of the former British colony to China. That event was the imposition of China's new national security law for Hong Kong, the communist instrument with which China, in one stunning blow, stripped away wholesale the rights and freedoms it promised to Hong Kong for 50 years after the handover. Written and passed in Beijing, imposed without allowing Hong Kong's people any say, this law effectively eliminates the institutional barriers that separated Hong Kong's relatively free and open system from China's increasingly totalitarian rule. Under this law, virtually any act of choice in Hong Kong is not a matter of right, but done at the dispensation, or not, of Beijing. 
Passage of the law marks the first full takedown by a communist tyranny of a thriving and mature free society. For Hong Kong, it is a colossal tragedy. For all of us, it's a harbinger of the 21st century world order that China's ruler Xi Jinping is already heavily influencing and proposes to dominate under his vision of a shared future for mankind. Because Hong Kong falls under Chinese sovereignty, China calls its crushing of Hong Kong a purely internal matter. That's wrong. China signed a binding international treaty with Britain, the 1984 Sino-British Joint Declaration, guaranteeing that from the time of the 1997 handover until at least the year 2047, Hong Kong would be self-governing in domestic affairs, enjoying a high degree of autonomy under an arrangement Beijing dubbed one country, two systems. What stands out today is not solely China's bad faith in violating a binding treaty that still has 27 years left on the clock, though that should give pause to anyone inclined to believe such worthless declarations by Beijing as its promise to reduce carbon emissions to zero by the year 2060. The further alarming precedent is the speed, brutality, and sweep with which China has reduced the vibrant, open city of Hong Kong to a shrouded enclave of repression, censorship, and political prisoners. In sizing up China's threats towards its next target, Taiwan, and its likely timetable for Xi's desired dominance worldwide, it's important to understand just how rapidly China rolled over Hong Kong once Beijing really swung into motion and how dark a scene it has become. Less than two years ago, Hong Kong was one of the great cities of the free world. It was a cosmopolitan home on the China coast to 7.5 million people enjoying free trade, free speech, a British legacy of rule of law, and great pride in belonging to what their own administration dubbed Asia's world city. Yes, there were growing portents of big trouble. Beijing had reneged on its promise of genuine democracy, leaving Hong Kong with a chief executive chosen by Beijing and a chronic pro-Beijing majority in the legislature. Nonetheless, there was a quantum difference between dynamically open Hong Kong and the repressive communist surveillance state of mainland China. Then in 2019, Hong Kong's chief executive, Carrie Lam, tried to bulldoze in to force a law allowing extradition to China. Hong Kong erupted in huge street demonstrations, initially against the extradition law, which Lam finally withdrew. The protests quickly turned into demand f demands for democracy and broad defiance of Beijing's increasingly repressive grip. For months, the protests carried on, wreathed in tear gas, with escalating street battles between protesters and police. Beijing blankly refused to offer any compromise, instead issuing dire threats. Hong Kongers stood, by, stood their ground in late 2019. In November, they seized a symbolic chance to register their desire for democracy by delivering a landslide victory for pro-democracy candidates in district council elections. These are largely powerless posts, but it was at least a chance to cast a vote. That victory raised hopes that in the far more important legislative elections expected in December in uh, September 2020, there might be enough pro-democracy votes to finally overcome an electoral system configured to ensure a pro-Beijing majority. In early 2020, the spread from Wuhan, China of the coronavirus came. The related restrictions have since doubled as a veil for China's dirty work. 
In March, Hong Kong's government imposed an entry ban on almost all non-residents, now extended through March 2021, drastically curtailing international traffic through the city and effectively walling out many international reporters. In June, while the world was preoccupied with the pandemic, Beijing delivered its mortal blow to Hong Kong's freedoms, passing the Law of the People's Republic of China on Safeguarding National Security in Hong Kong's Special Administrative Region. This law runs to 66 articles, but boils down to Beijing granting itself the power to intervene in Hong Kong in any matter that China's government deems relevant to national security, a concept that under China's communist rule means whatever the party overlords want it to mean. The law criminalizes activities such as criticism, the authorities deem dangerous, or collusion with foreign elements in terms in terms vague enough to put Hong Kongers at risk for what were previously normal discussions. Grave offenders can be sent to mainland China for prosecution and punishment. The law includes provisions criminalizing offenses committed not only in Hong Kong, but by anyone anywhere around the globe. According to a December report submitted to Congress by the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, left unchecked, the law could grant the Chinese government broad power to censor global discourse. Under this law, mainland security forces arrived openly for the first time in Hong Kong this summer, empowered to conduct surveillance, warrantless searches, and arrests as they see fit. Hong Kong's authorities began culling pro-democracy books from public shelves. They outlawed the famous protest slogan, Liberate Hong Kong, Revolution of Our Time. They banned students from singing or playing the haunting anthem that protesters came up with last year, Glory to Hong Kong. When some of the Hong Kong creative protesters staged a demonstration in which they held up blank placards, they were arrested. For Hong Kong's democracy advocates, the legislative elections scheduled for September offered a glimmer of recourse. Hoping to win a majority, they organized primaries in mid-July that produced a record turnout. But the elections never took place. On July 31st, Lamb announced that due to coronavirus concerns, the elections would be postponed for a full year. That left the old legislature in place, with pro-democracy lawmakers in the minority. But even that was too much dissent for Beijing. In November, on grounds of national security, the Standing Committee of China's National People's Congress disqualified four of Hong Kong's pro-democracy lawmakers. In protest against the hopelessly stacked deck, the remaining 15 pro-democracy lawmakers quit. Meantime, the arrests and charges have been proceeding apace, populating Hong Kong's prison with political dissidents. Since the start of the protests last year, more than a 10,000 have been arrested, many of them prior to China's security law, but all of them, or anyone in Hong Kong for that matter, now facing a system in which China's draconian definition of national security is reshaping the rules. Earlier this year, prominent young democracy advocates Joshua Wong and Agnes Chow received prison sentences. Most famous of Hong Kong's democratic dissidents now awaiting trial on multiple charges is 73-year-old Jimmy Lai. He's a wealthy businessman, publisher and founder of the hugely pro-democracy popular 
uh, pro-democracy newspaper paper, Apple Daily. Hong Kong authorities have arrested him a number of times this year, parading him in handcuffs and shackles, ransacking the offices of his newspaper, and finally charging him under the national security law with colluding with foreign forces, which could translate into a life sentence possibly served in China. Hong Kong authorities have issued arrest warrants for a number of dissidents who have fled the city, as well as a warrant for a naturalized American citizen wanted for the offense of lobbying the U.S. government to support Hong Kong's demands for democracy. In August, 12 Hong Kong dissidents tried to flee by boat to Taiwan. They were seized by China's Coast Guard and imprisoned not in Hong Kong, but in mainland China, where 10 have now been indicted. Hong Kong's administration is revising school textbooks to delete such democratic ideas as separation of powers and replace them with China's version of patriotic education. There are reports of Hong Kong parents afraid to discuss politics in front of their own children, lest school authorities ferret out signs of dissent. Xi made his plans for Hong Kong quite clear in an October speech delivered in the nearly in the nearby Chinese special economic zone of Shenzhen. Never mind the immediate cost, Hong Kong, much diminished, is to be mulched into surrounding Chinese turf, Xi calls the Greater Bay Area, integrated into China's system as a compliant node in his Belt and Road Initiative for trade supremacy and global dominance. Under President Donald Trump, the U.S. has led the global response to this nightmare, withdrawing Hong Kong's special trade status, scrapping extradition arrangements, and blacklisting some of Hong Kong's top officials, including Chief Executive Lam. Most important, the Trump administration has roused the world to dangers compounding out of China, and the administration has begun steering away from the U.S. policies of open-handed trade and engagement that for many decades enriched and emboldened China's Communist Party. Anyone in a Biden administration who might be tempted to revert to the old cozy ways should take a look a close look at the grim landscape Xi has created this year in the once free city of Hong Kong and the speed with which he did it. Protect me and you So 
patriots from near and far Support our military superstars And lost our radio You will receive the truth And lost our radio We stand proud of this Stop by Last Scout Radio's Patreon page. That's Choctaw LSR Radio. Log in, select a membership level, and give what you can. Choctaw will appreciate your contributions. There are different levels. Check out his channel and all the other great stuff that you can find only here on Last Scout Radio. Well, being as it's the last episode of the year, I thought some uh, review was in order. Here's an article from Ars Technica. 2020 had its share of memorable hacks and breaches. Here are the top 10. The past 12 months teaches us that, yes, attacks do only get better by Dan Gooden, dated 1228. 2020 was a tough year for a lot of reasons, not least of which were breaches and hacks that visited pain on end users, customers, and the organizations that were targeted. The ransomware menace dominated headlines with an endless stream of compromises hitting schools, governments, and private companies as, criminal, as criminals demanded ransoms in the millions of dollars. There was a steady stream of data breaches as well. Several mass account takeovers made appearances too. What follows are some of the highlights. For good measure, we're also throwing in a couple notable hacks that, while not actively used in the wild, were impressive beyond measure or pushed the boundaries of security. Of course, there's the Solar Winds hack, which we just talked about. 2020 saved the most devastating breach for last. Hackers that multiple 
public officials say are backed by the Russian government started by compromising the software systems of SolarWinds, the maker of network monitoring software that tens of thousands of organizations use. Backers then use their position to deliver a backdoored update to about 18,000 customers. From there, the hackers had the ability to steal, destroy, or modify data on the networks of those customers. It's going to take time for investigators to assess the damage. That's because not everyone who installed the malicious update received follow-on attacks. So far, security firm FireEye has says that hackers sought information about its government customers and also stole red team tools used to test customer security defenses. U.S. officials, meanwhile, have said that dozens of Treasury Department email accounts have also been hacked. While the full effects of the breach won't be known for another few months, it's already clear that SolarWinds has hacked has uh, is one of the most damaging espionage hacks visited on the U.S. in the past decade, if not all time. It was carried out by attacking a software supply chain that's vital to some of the biggest companies and government agencies in the world. Attackers then used that pipeline to burrow deep into the networks of the most interesting entities. Besides the loss of so much valuable data, the SolarWinds hack is notable for the top-tier tradecraft it used. The attackers, according to Yahoo News, had control of SolarWinds' update system no later than October 2019. They started pushing out malicious updates in March. The industry-wide compromise came to light not by government agencies tasked with uncovering such things, but rather because of the investigation FireEye did. In July, Twitter lost control of its internal systems to hackers pushing a Bitcoin scam. The breach was notable because it compromised accounts belonging to politicians, celebrities, and business executives, many with millions of followers. While the damage was modest, about $100,000 in phony Bitcoin promotion payments and some personal data stolen from some account holders, a hack like this could have been used to do much worse things. I think an announcement from the government or business leaders that manipulates the stock market or stokes geopolitical tensions. Another thing that has made this breach significant was the people that perpetrated it and, and tactics that they used. Authorities charged a 17-year-old, a 19-year-old, and a 22-year-old with using a spear phishing attack that stole an administrative password from a Twitter employee working from home during the COVID-19 pandemic. A runner-up for another hack that led to mass compromise of accounts was the one that hit Nintendo in April. These are separate breaches. The ransomware attacks on Dusseldorf University Hospital, Garmin, and Foxconn, but together they underscore the cost ransomware attacks are exacting. Not only are they targeted organizations, but millions of people who rely on them. During an outage that hit one of the hospitals near Dusseldorf, Germany, a patient seeking life-saving treatment was turned away and died as she tried to obtain services from a more distant facility. It's possible that even likely it's possible or even likely that the patient would have died anyway, but the compromise nonetheless illustrates the potential, uh, potentially fatal role ransomware and other types of damaging hacks can have. The Garmin attack, meanwhile, caused a four-day outage that knocked out GPS services to millions of people, some of them aircraft pilots doing flight planning and mapping. Another ransomware attack that attracted attention was the breach of electronics giant Foxconn. Attackers demanded $34 million in return of the data, making it the highest ransom ever sought. Foxconn makes hardware for Apple. Data breaches hitting Marriott and EasyJet. These were also separate hacks, but they led to compromise of personal data belonging to hundreds of millions of individuals. For Marriott, the loss of information 
for 5.2 million guests was the second time in three years it had sustained a hack of that magnitude. A breach of EasyJet affected 9 million passengers. An iPhone zero-click exploit and the extraction of an Intel CPU crypto key. Not all hacks are bad. More often than not, they're done by the good guys. And occasionally, they're so elegant that you have to admire them for the ingenuity that went into them. This year's most impressive hack came from Ian Beer, a member of Google's Project Zero Vulnerability Research Team. He devised an attack that, until Apple issued an update, gave him full access to every iPhone within range of his malicious Wi-Fi access point. His attack didn't require the iPhone user to do anything, and it was warmable, meaning exploits could spread from one nearby device to another. The exploit is one of the most impressive hacking feats in recent memory and shows that the damage that can result from a single garden variety vulnerability. Apple patched a buffer overflow flaw after Beer privately reported it. Another top hack this year was the extraction of a secret key used to encrypt microcode on an Intel CPU, a first in the annals of security and reverse engineering. The key makes it possible to decrypt the microcode updates Intel provides to fix security vulnerabilities and other types of bugs. Having a decrypted copy of an update may allow hackers to reverse engineer it and learn precisely how to exploit the hole it's patching. The key may also allow parties other than Intel, say a malicious hacker or a hobbyist, to update chips with their own microcode, although that customized version wouldn't survive a reboot. There's an old saying in security circles that attackers only get better. 2020 proved the saying to be true once again, and no doubt 2021 will do the same. The review of this year would be complete without a little bit of talking about what Trump has done to the courts. This story from Cron.com, the Houston Chronicle, Trump's impact on courts likely to last long beyond his term by Mark Sherman, Kevin Freaking, and Matthew Daly of the Associated Press, dated December 26th. Washington on this, even President Trump's most fevered critics agree he has left a deep imprint on the federal court so outlast his term in office for decades to come. He used the promise of conservative judicial appointments to win over Republican skeptics as a candidate. Then as president, he relied on outside conservative legal organizations and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to employ an assembly line-like precision to install more than 230 judges on the federal bench, including three newest justices of the Supreme Court. Trump never tired of boasting about it. Indeed, undeterred by Democratic criticism, the Senate was still confirming judges more than a month after Trump lost his reelection election bid to Joe Biden. Trump has basically done more than any president has done in a single term since Jimmy Carter to put his stamp on the judiciary, said Jonathan Adler, a law professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Law in Cleveland. Congress created about 150 new judgeships during Carter's presidency, he said. The impact will be enduring among the Trump-appointed judges who hold lifetime positions. Several are still in their 30s. The three Supreme Court picks could still be on the court at the 21st century's midpoint 30 years from now. Beyond the Supreme Court, 30% of the judges on the nation's Court of Appeals, where all but a handful of cases reached their end, were appointed by Trump. But numbers don't tell the entire story. The real measure of what Trump has been able to do will be revealed in countless court decisions in the years to come on abortion, guns, religious rights, and a host of other culture wars issues. 
when it came when it came down to the president's own legal challenges of the election results however judges who have to have him to thank for their position rebuffed his claims but in many other important ways his success with judicial appointments already is paying dividends for conservatives when the supreme court blocked new york from enforcing certain limits on attendance at churches and synagogues in areas designated as hard hit by covid 19 justice amy coney barrett the newest member of the court cast the decisive fifth vote previously the court had allowed restrictions on religious services over the dissent of four justices including the other two trump nominees neil gorsuch and brett kavanaugh Five Trump appointees were in the majority of the 6-4 decision by the full 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in September that made it harder for felons in Florida to regain the right to vote. The Atlanta-based court had a majority of Democratic-appointed judges when Trump took office. Last month, Judges Britt Grant and Barbara Lagoa, both named by Trump, formed the majority on a three-judge 11th Circuit panel that struck down local Florida bans on therapy that seeks to change the sexual orientation of LGBTQ minors. Other appeals courts around the country have upheld the conversion therapy bans. In one early look at Trump's appointees to federal trial courts, political science professors Kenneth Manning, Robert Karp, and Lisa Holmes compared the decisions with more than 117,000 opinions published dated dating to 1932. Trump has appointed judges who exhibit a distinct decision-making pattern that is, on the whole, significantly more conservative than previous presidents, the political scientists concluded in a working paper in October. The The one constant of the past four years through impeachment, the coronavirus pandemic, and Trump's election loss, that has been the nomination of and Senate confirmation of judges. The president has had several partners in the judicial effort, but none more important than McConnell, who takes particular pride in reshaping the Supreme Court. I think it's far and away the most consequential thing I've ever been involved in, the 78-year-old McConnell said at an interview, and it's the most long-standing accomplishment of the current administration by far. They might uh, might not have called it a partnership at the time, but their mutually reinforcing work began even before Trump's election in 2016. Trump used the issue of the federal judiciary to win trust with voters who might have questions about the conservative credentials of a billionaire real estate developer who once supported abortion rights and did not have a track record in politics. He put in writing a list of potential nominees provided by the Conservative Federalist Society and Heritage Foundation he would select from in filling a Supreme Court vacancy. Kellyanne Conaway, who served as his campaign manager in 2016, said it was a move that people who had been in office for years and wanted to ascend to the presidency didn't have the courage to do, which is name names. As it happens, there was a high court opening at the time following the death of Justice Antonin Scalia in February. Enter McConnell. The Republican blocked President Barack Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland, refusing so much as a hearing for the respected appeals court judge, whom Republicans had previously identified as a high court nominee they could support. It was a gamble at a time when Trump's electoral prospects seemed dim, but it paid off with his stunning victory over Hillary Clinton. And the high court seat wasn't the only one waiting to be filled when Trump took office in January 2017. Altogether, 104 judgeships were open after Republicans used their Senate majority to grind the nomination process to a near halt in Obama's final two years in office. Only 28.6% of his nominees were confirmed in that stretch. 
base quickened almost immediately. Republicans moved with an urgency on confirmations that hasn't let up. In Trump's first two years, they pushed through 30 appellate court judges and 53 district court nominees. It was the highest number of appellate court confirmations in a two-year period since Ronald Reagan and nearly double the number that Obama secured in his first two years. McConnell and top Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee eliminated rules that allowed the opposition party to delay confirmations, most notably requiring just a simple majority instead of 60 votes to move Supreme Court nominees. Democrats bitter over the stalled Garland nomination otherwise would have blocked Gorsuch's confirmation in April of 2017. Senator Sheldon in White House of Rhode Island, a Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee and a sharp Trump critic, said Trump's judicial legacy is a lot less about what he's done than what he's allowed others to do in his name. White House and Trump essentially outsourced judicial nominations to McConnell and the Federalist Society, specifically the group's leader Leonard Leo and former White House counsel Don McGahn, a Federalist Society member who made judicial nominations a top priority. At the same time, the Federalist Society and other conservative groups, including the Judicial Crisis Network and Americans for Prosperity, have taken millions of dollars in anonymous donations and waged public and behind-the-scenes campaigns for for right-wing judges, White House said. Trump opened the channel for special interest interference in the judicial selection, White House complained, that I think is very novel and obviously lends itself to corruption, he said. Right-wing forces have for decades sought the kind of influence in judicial nominations the Trump administration outright gave them. McConnell scoffed at the criticism. The reason a lot of them belong to the Federalist Society is because that is the sort of core mission of the Federalist Society, to get the courts back to doing what they're supposed to do and not legislate from the bench, he said. On the campaign trail and at the White House events, Trump would often cite his record on judicial appointments as an example of accomplishment while ignoring the obstructions that occurred during the Obama years. You know, when I got in, we had over 100 federal judges that weren't appointed, he said. Now, I don't know why Obama left that. It was like a big, beautiful present to all of us. Why the hell did he leave that? Maybe he got complacent. Trump admitted the essential fact that McConnell had blocked Obama's nominees or that it was there for the old hag to fill. The high court vacancy at the start of Trump's term was, in essence, a gift from McConnell. Justice Anthony Kennedy's decision to retire in 2018 allowed Trump to replace the court's swing justice with more conservative Kavanaugh, who served his own bruising, survived his own bruising confirmation hearings that included allegations he sexually assaulted a woman when they were both in high school decades ago. And of course, it turned out to be a whole lot of hooey. Less than two months before the 2020 election, Trump was handed another opening with the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Trump and Senate Republicans didn't hesitate. He nominated Barrett even before Ginsburg was buried at Arlington National Cemetery, and McConnell ensured the confirmation was done before the election. The Senate has continued confirming Trump nominees even after his defeat for re-election, breaking a norm that has stood since 1900, with one exception, said Russell Wheeler, a a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution. Federal Prosecutor Thomas Kirsch was confirmed as Barrett's replacement on the Federal Appeals Court based in Chicago on December 15th on a mostly party-line vote. The exception was the Senate's bipartisan acceptance in 1980 of a former Senate staff member as a Federal Appeals Court judge. That nominee was Stephen Breyer, now a Supreme Court justice. 
Along with the question of legacy is whether Trump's record on judges spurs major changes to the judiciary. Wheeler at Brookings said one of the most striking features of the teamwork of Trump and McConnell is that they acted as though they had the support of most Americans. They did not, he said. My main beef with this current group is that there's just no mandate to turn the judiciary so far to the right, Wheeler said. Trump lost the popular vote massively in 2016, but nevertheless has behaved as if he had a mandate to reshape the federal judiciary at the Supreme Court and Court of Appeals level, and I think that's just unfounded. (laughs) These people. Liberal groups already have been pushing for changes at the highest level, including expansion of the Supreme Court and term limits for justices. The political prospects for both ideas are uncertain at best because they're losing. But there's less doubt from any vantage point about what Trump has wrought. The U.S. will be living with the legacy of Donald Trump for decades to come as the result of his judicial appointments, said Brian Fallon, executive director of Demand Justice, a liberal advocacy group. People who accepted judicial appointments from Trump will wear the moniker of Trump judge for the rest of their lives. Not so in Conway's view, it will be one of the most lasting pieces of his legacy, distinguished and durable, she said. <laughs> crazy hey if it's making the left insane uh if they are whining because it's unfair it's probably a good thing we've also got this article here from breitbart nolte 14 media outlets that lied about hunter biden's laptop scandal being russian disinformation i won't go through all 14 but i thought this was a good top of the end of the year list to leave with you and i like nolte's writing uh, the fake news media's decision to finally cover the Hunter Biden laptop scandal now that all 50 states have certified the election results is just another troll. You do know that, don't you? It's just the corporate media trolling us once again, trying to get a rise out of us once again because that's all they have left. The media don't do journalism anymore. The media don't report anymore. No one trusts them anymore, so they troll. Nevertheless, it is worth pointing out how after the now verified October bombshell hit about Hunter Biden's laptop, the deep state and the corporate media teamed up once again to mislead the country. And as though both parties were feeling nostalgic for the old days of the Russia collusion hoax, they went right back to Russia. Well, so here's how it went down. The news of Hunter Biden's laptop broke wide open just before the 2020 election. The corporate media were desperate to throw a fire blanket over what they knew was a legitimate scandal. How do we do that? They asked. How do we kill a legitimate story? Oh, I know. Let's get our deep state pals to tell us all the lies we want to hear, just like they did four years on the Russia collusion hoax. Only this time they will tell us that the Hunter Biden laptop is fake, created by Russia, and that it will allow us not to and that will allow us not to report on what we know is the truth. And that's exactly what the media in the deep state did. 50, 50, LOL, deep staters warned that the Hunter laptop story sounded like Russia disinformation. They had no evidence, none at all, because there was no evidence. But they said it because the corporate media in Silicon Valley needed them to say it to justify ignoring a legitimate and consequential story. The letter released Monday states, we want to emphasize that we do not know if the emails provided to the New York Post by President Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, are genuine or not, and that we do not have evidence of Russian involvement, just that our experience makes us deeply suspicious that the Russian government played a significant role in this case. Anyway, I'll leave this link for you as well. Foxnews.com put together this list of top profile headlines for the year of 2020. 
2020 will always be remembered for the coronavirus pandemic, but it was also a year of high-profile scandals. Some are ongoing, including the college admissions scandal, sex crime allegations against, against disgraced media mogul Harvey Weinstein, and investigations into sex abuses by associates of deceased financier Jeffrey Epstein. Here's a look back at scandals that rocked the nation. We have this one. Jeffrey Epstein was a hedge fund manager who rubbed elbows with the rich, famous, and influential, including presidents and a prince. They go through in detail all the different things that have to do with he and Ghislaine Maxwell uh, and how they are tied back to the prince. It's a, it's a nice synopsis of all that business. And then we have the college admissions scandal. Of course, uh, one of these people has been released from prison after serving her little two-month sentence already. The scheme came to light in March and embroiled actress Lori Laughlin, known for her role as Aunt Becky in Full House. Her fashion designer husband Massimo Giannulli and Felicity Huffman, who starred in Desperate Housewives as Lynette Scavo. It also involved a former PIMCO CEO and heiress to the Hot Pockets fortune and several coaches, such as a former Georgetown University tennis coach Gordon Ernst, who's accused of getting $2.7 million in bribes to designate at least 12 applicants as recruits. Rick Singer, the man accused of being the ringleader behind the scheme, pled guilty early on. Singer flipped and started working with investigators as early as 20, uh, September 2018 and secretly recorded his conversations with parents and coaches. Goes into a little bit of detail there. It's a, uh, also an, another good one. Then we have Harvey, Harvey, Harvey Weinstein's sex scandal. You know, gross, disgusting, casting couch business. Uh, stripped of UK royal honor by Queen Elizabeth II. You know, he's all mixed up with all the, um, it's just disgusting. I have a couple of other links I want to leave with you as well that I won't cover tonight. One of them here is the history of what the word neocon means and who those people were. They were Democrats who were unhappy with the Democrat Party who decided to form their own sort of, sidle into the Republican Party and how they have uh, infected it with their ideas that fail. And we need to uh, figure out who they are and call them out because they got mainstreamed in the last 20 years. I uh, also want to talk a little bit about the Article 5 Convention of States that nobody seems to know about. When Congress can't be reined in, when Supreme Courts fail to uphold their oath, or when presidents declare wars or executive orders counter law, the founders left us the last say-so that we could amend the Constitution to get concealed carry reciprocity, to protect home and land ownership and water rights, to enshrine eligibility requirements for presidents, to lock in the number of Supreme Court justices, to get term limits on Congress, to roll back constitutional changes of the past that just didn't work. Whatever it is, we have the power to do it through our state legislatures. It's important now more than ever to be involved in local politics and state politics, especially those we think are on our side. We need to continue to vet them all the time, checking for outside influence and impropriety that can be used to keep them from acting appropriately when it matters. So I'll leave a link here to conventionofstates.com. I know this more than anybody. I think the Georgia uh, results for this election have proven that we can't trust anybody. I also wanted to share with you this gab from Lynn Wood. 
there seems to be a pandemic of poorly reasoned rulings by Title III judges in 2020 election fraud cases. I wonder how many of those judges are familiar with the surveillance program named Sunset or what that illegal spy program revealed about them. Ooh, I wonder what that could be about. I want to leave you a link to Sidney Powell's 270-page bombshell release um, from Zinger News. I did a little research on this PDF first. Uh, I'm not familiar with Zinger, but apparently this is um, a place where people are offloading stuff they can't get published anywhere else. So I'll leave this for you. to. It's got a watermark all over it that says Zinger, Zinger, Zinger. So they're taking ownership of hosting it there. Also, we have this story here. Michael Flynn, 2020 election is a crucible moment in American history from the Epoch Times. Lieutenant Michael, General Michael Flynn, former National Security Advisor to President Donald Trump, said this week that he believes the 2020 general election was an embarrassment for the American people and a crucible moment for America. He added that to move forward, the government and the American people need to reconcile. Flynn, the former head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, made the comments to the Epic Times American thought leaders in this fantastic series during an interview before Christmas in which he talked about threats the United States is facing, his prescription for a better America, and his years-long political saga that ended with a pardon from the president. Flynn said, going forward, as we get through this election, particularly this election, which is a crucible moment in our history, unprecedented, never happened before, and it's an embarrassment to me as an American citizen, never mind someone who served in our highest levels of government, to the rest of the world, because what we've done for others around the world, we can't even get our own damn elections correct. But moving forward, we have to have a reconciliation between the government and we the people, the people of this country, he added. The 2020 general election has garnered intense scrutiny over unconstitutional last-minute changes to mail-in voting rules made due to the CCP virus uh, pandemic, a raft of allegations about election irregularities, and the subsequent legal battle launched by the Trump campaign. In recent weeks, a slew of evidence from sworn witnesses and experts emerged raising questions about the integrity of the November 3rd election, including not verifying signatures on ballots, alleging backdating, of ballots and votes by dead or ineligible people. For a reconciliation to occur, Flynn said people in government need to recognize its institutions would not exist without the sacrifices made by every American citizen, including hardworking Americans, men and women in uniform, and others who've sacrificed their lives for the nation. Flynn said he believes many bureaucratic institutions have forgotten who they work for. That goes down to state and to some local levels, cities, communities where people are in government and they forget they actually work for the people who are paying their salaries. Again, that's the system that we have, the retired three-star general said. He said that if American, if the United States is unable to reconcile government with Americans through ensuring that U.S. institutions are made more accountable, then significant changes in the system are necessary, starting with the education system. He said that in the past, young children were taught to recite the Pledge of Allegiance every day, and although children may not fully grasp its significance right away, it taught them what's important about the nation. I want children to be able to learn about our country, he said. Flynn also shared his view for a better America, saying that it starts from family and faith in God. But if you read about the Founding Fathers and what was the principal document they used to write the Constitution, it was the Bible. So that's in our DNA. There are elements trying, these are, there are elements trying to rip it out, but that's in our DNA, he said. 
during the interview, Flynn also reflected on the greatest misconception the public had about his battle with the justice system, that it was a fair system or a fair process. I think that's a misconception by a lot of people that have watched it from afar instead of those who paid great attention to the detail from the beginning, Flynn said. Documents released early this year suggest that Flynn, while he was National Security Advisor in 2017, was set up by FBI senior officials to perjure himself during a meeting at the White House early in 2017. He was fired by Trump shortly after. He was then subjected to a protracted legal battle until the Justice Department eventually dismissed his case in May. Trump pardoned Flynn the day before Thanksgiving. When asked if he could envision himself working in the government again, Flynn explained that working for the government is not a question of imagining or question of doing, it's a question of service. And if asked to serve, he believes his values should align the same way with the people who are asking him to serve. Service to the nation is something that I firmly believe in. It doesn't mean that everybody has to go serve in the Army or the Navy or the Air Force and Marine Corps and our military. It doesn't mean that people have to serve in the government. We have people that serve all sorts of capacities, Glenn said. So my thing is that if I'm called to serve, I have to really faithfully think about it. And certainly my family comes into that equation probably paramount but also my faith because I have to understand that. And I hope that the values that I have and that I have in my DNA, I hope that those values are part of the people that are asking me to serve in this case, let's say the president of the United States. I have to believe that our values in some way align. And finally, we have this story from the Epic Times as well. Trump urges supporters to gather in D.C. on January 6th by Zachary Stiber. President Donald Trump on Sunday urged supporters to join the planned protests in Washington on January 6th. See you in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. Don't miss it. Trump wrote in a tweet promising more information later. A number of groups are planning to gather in the nation's capital next month as members of Congress convene in a joint session to count electoral votes. At least 11 members or members-elect in the House of Representatives plan to object to electoral votes. They have not yet received a commitment from a senator. Challenges require both a representative and a member of the upper congressional chamber. The objection wouldn't be upheld unless a majority of each chamber vote in favor of it. Trump has repeatedly called on Republican senators to object to the votes, alleging widespread election fraud in swing states. About two dozen GOP senators have already said they will not object to the votes, according to Epic Times tally. Others have indicated they would not join in an objection. Five senators have said they are open to objecting to the votes, as is Senator-elect Tommy Tuberville, while the rest haven't ruled it out. I'll leave this link in. Of course, all of the links are on Gab. I hope you have a wonderful week. Get ready for the new year. Prepare for what comes next and stay close to your family. Until next week, it's Backpa signing off from another episode of Atomic Biscuits. So long, everybody.
Without each other, we would have nothing. The wisdom of the Lord is in our 